Samuel, uh, the last time we were together in this story, we were looking at how David was in the wilderness on the run from his son Absalom. Absalom, you might remember, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He assembled his followers, he anointed himself king, and he marched with an army into Jerusalem and caused his dad, David, to flee from the throne. We spent some time last few weeks looking at some of the psalms that David wrote during this very painful time in his life. But this morning we're now back in 2 Samuel together. And at the beginning of the chapter that we're in right now, we see a great civil war is happening east of the Jordan River. David's army against Absalom and his army are battling in the forest of Ephraim. Now, it's not the forest of Endor, but it sounds like a pretty cool place to have a battle. In this battle, we see that David has sent his troops to fight, and he gave them one command before they left. These are the words of King David to his leaders and to the people. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. David told his commanders of his army, including Joab, his top general, in front of all the people that they need to try to win the battle, but save his son. Well, during the battle, Absalom, David's son, was riding on a mule. You could read about this in 2 Samuel 18. And his massive head of hair that was his pride and joy gets caught in a branch and he's stuck hanging by the tree. This great leader, this son, an enemy of David, was left dangling by a tree, alive but helpless. Well, a soldier finds him in that state, but he refuses to kill him because of David's words. So he goes to Joab, and he tells Joab he found Absalom. Now, Joab is not as compassionate towards Absalom as David is, so he goes, finds Absalom, kills him brutally, and throws his body into the pit. The war is over. David's side has won. Absalom is dead. So there's this one guy that wants to run and tell the king, David, what happened at the news of the battle. But Joab knows that David's probably not going to be too happy with the news of his son's death. So he sends this unknown foreigner, a Cushite, to go and tell David the news of the battle. And that is where we pick up right now in our story. So I'm going to read for us in 2 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man, Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved. And he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered the shame, the faces of all your servants. 
who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you've made it clear today the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom was alive and all of us were dead, today then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And that this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from youth until now. Then the king arose, took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate, and all the people came before the king. This is God's word, and it is given to us for our good. So last week, in between the two services, someone asked me if our first year of marriage was hard. I was talking to this couple about marriage in general when they asked me this question about my wife Linda and I. And I told them that I felt like our first year of marriage was not that hard. And thankfully, my wife agreed with me when I asked her later on if this was true. Our first year of marriage was not necessarily hard, but it was a little bit complicated. And it was complicated especially because of the context of where I was living prior to getting married. Before marrying Linda, my wife, I was living with four of my closest friends in Evanston. And this caused some struggles to adjust to married life, leaving those four guys to be married to Linda. And there were some complications. And I will just give you one example. When I lived with these four guys, if someone did something annoying or irritating and they were told to stop, it was fun to do it three or four more times, even though they said no. When my wife told me I was doing something annoying or irritating, she wanted me to stop immediately. That did not make as much sense to me at the time. It was a little complicated for me because my roommate was now my wife and it was very different than my other roommates. Relationships as a whole are very complicated. I am sure that many of you have complicated relationships with your family, with your coworkers, with your roommates, with your neighbors, with people that are sitting in the pews around you. This idea of complicated relationships is what just went through my mind over and over again as I read 2 Samuel 18 and 19, preparing for this sermon. Our story this morning has a king who is also a father. Our story this morning has a son who is also a usurper of this king. Our story has David longing for victory in battle but he wants the enemy leader, his son, to be alive. It's complicated. Kind of wish I named my sermon that. It's complicated. Like my first year of marriage was complicated because of the context that I came from, this story is complicated because of the context of various characters that we see throughout these chapters. Absalom is central to this story, yet he doesn't speak a word in all of 2 Samuel 18. Joab is dominant in this story, and he seems to do things right and wrong at the same time. David is passive in this story. David is the king, but he is out of control. This is a complicated story that we get to examine together. So our passage begins, and David is anxiously awaiting news of the battle, but more importantly than that, anxiously awaiting news about what happened to his son. 
And the Cushite comes, and I shared these words already to you. He says, good news for you, my lord, the king. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose against you. Good news. Yahweh, the Lord, has delivered you this day. Now, this is what David wanted. This is what David believed God had promised him. If you listen to last week's sermon on Psalm 3, we hear David describe the enemies all around him, but he believed the Lord was a shield to protect him. David last week said these words that the enemies are out to kill him, but the Lord will sustain me. And God did. What the Cushite says here is 100% true. Yahweh the Lord has delivered David this day. See, Absalom, the darling of the people, the beautiful, prideful prince of Israel, the self-anointed king who could work the crowds in a way that created a following that allowed them to go against their king, was dead. And when he died, the rebellion died with him. David was delivered from his enemies. Justice had prevailed. Victory that God had promised long ago finally came true, despite all the many bleak and discouraging things that were coming up. And keep in mind this. Absalom not only set himself up against his father, the king, but Absalom set himself up against God and his kingdom and his kingdom people. You see, God had made a promise to David and his people. We heard about it a few weeks ago in a sermon on 2 Samuel 7. God comes to David and he makes this promise to him and to the people that David was the king of. God says, I will be there for you. I will make your name great. God says, I will appoint a place where my people can dwell in their own place and not be disturbed no more. God promised David that he would get rest from all his enemies. And then God gave David a promise that is still a promise that gives us hope today for us. These great words that God said to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we know that this ultimate promise of the king and the line of David on the throne forever is fulfilled in Jesus. But it matters in our story today that this kingdom was not thwarted by Absalom. It matters that those who oppose God's kingdom and God's people did not win out in the end. Now we will get to David's response in a moment, but before we do, we can't miss the promise that God gives of his kingdom and that he always keeps his promise. We get to worship a God today that is the same God David worshipped. We get to worship a God today that made promises to David and makes promises to us, and he never, ever breaks his promises. We get to worship a God today who will never let his kingdom be destroyed or his plans thwarted. The same God who gave victory over the enemies of David gives us victory over our enemies as well. The same promise given to David is true to us, that God will give us rest from our enemies. The enemies of sin and pride and shame, the enemies that break us down and make us feel insignificant or lower than we are, the enemies that tell us we are worthless and losers, they will be destroyed one day. Sin will be no more. We long for that day when God will deliver us all from evil and we will be in glory in perfection. 
But until that happens, life is still complicated. But God's promises are still true. But David doesn't seem to care about the victory. All he wants to know is, is it well with the young man Absalom? And when he hears the news of Absalom's death, he loses it completely. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? These are some of the most heart-rendering words ever spoken. David cries from his gut the intensity and the pain that he is experiencing. This is deep, unrestrained, and unguarded grief. Now, David has experienced death before, even death of people he loved. When Saul and Jonathan, whom David loved, died, David mourned, but he also wrote a beautiful song of lament about this experience. When David's child died, who he conceived with Bathsheba, he talks about very somber words about his own mortality and the irresistibility of death. But now, eloquent David is reduced to a blubbering grief and desperate pain. It is no longer the young man Absalom on the lips of David. It is my son, my son, my son. He is weeping and mourning for the loss of his son. He is a broken man, and he is unable to be comforted in his grief. And it makes sense. To lose a child of any age has to be one of the most painful experiences ever. I cannot speak to it because I don't know what it is like. The only thing I can say, because I know some of you have experienced this, is I'm sorry. I can't even imagine the pain it would be to lose a loved one, your own child. David had to be experiencing that deep pain of mourning the loss of life. But I also think David's grief came from knowing that he played a part in the story that caused this grief. You see, when David took Bathsheba from another man and violated her, when David then murdered Bathsheba's husband to cover up his sin, Nathan, Nathan came to him, the prophet, and said, the sword will not depart from your house forever. And if you've been a part of the last few weeks of sermons here, you have seen that prophecy play over and over and over again in the life of David. David was forgiven by God. David did horrible sins, but God's grace is greater than any of our sins. But the consequences of his sin was still here. Him taking another man's wife and murdering that man caused consequences of deep pain and struggle. Sin feeds upon sin. Sin feeds upon sin. And the amount of dysfunction in David's family line grows and grows and grows ever since that first sin with Bathsheba. And it ultimately leads to the death of Absalom. And David has to know that many of his actions caused a lot of the pain that he is feeling right now. And one of those past actions towards Absalom by David that I had forgotten about until I started preparing for this sermon was something that happened in David's life that might have been in his mind as he was dealing with this grief. You see, Absalom was living in Jerusalem with David. And then the dysfunctional family happened again, and one of Absalom's half-brothers raped his sister. Absalom then goes and kills his half-brother. Chaos he has to flee from Jerusalem, brokenness throughout. 
But I'd forgotten that Absalom, after a bit being away, was allowed back in to Jerusalem for two years. David seems to forgive the killing of Abnon and allowing his son to live in Jerusalem. But this is what the text says about that situation. Absalom was never, ever allowed into the presence of David, his father. For two years, Absalom lived in Jerusalem and never once saw his father, David. David's pardon was very impersonal. As one commentary I read put it, his forgiveness was a judicial act, not a fatherly embrace. So you wonder, in the cries of pain that David had in this story, did he think, I could have done more? You wonder if in his inconsolable grief, did he think about those two years where he shunned his own son? Now we don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but we know the human heart. I know my heart. It is very, very easy to hold a grudge. It is very easy to not forgive others that harm us. It is really easy to partially pardon others without ever truly wanting or trying for restoration. This is so much of a problem for us that over and over again in the New Testament, we see a call to forgive, a call to not hold grudges, a call to fight against anger and sin. Colossians says, bear with one another and forgive each other. Ephesians says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away. Romans tells us to repay no evil for evil, and Jesus himself tells us we must forgive because our Father forgives us. May we be reminded today May we be reminded of the danger of bitterness and grudges. Some of us are consuming ourselves with pain because we hold the grudge we can't let go. Some of us are deeply wounded because we are so hurt by what someone did that we can never let it go. May we fight against our tendency to see the sin in others way more than the sin in ourselves. May we fight against holding grudges, and having hard, unforgiving hearts. On the outside, we look fine, but on the inside, we hate one another. This is hard to do. This is almost impossible to do. How do we grow in not being so bitter and angry? How do we grow in being forgiving of others? How do we grow to not let sin feed upon sin in our lives? Well, this is complicated, and I know we all have different situations that maybe we're thinking of right now. But in whatever situation, whether you are in the right or you're in the wrong, whether there's someone you can't seek forgiveness from or can't forgive them right now, or someone that you're just struggling to even think about right now, the way we can grow in being people that aren't so bitter, the way we can grow in reminding ourselves we need to forgive others, is to remember and believe how much our loving Father forgives us. We have a loving father who refuses to treat us like David treated his son. We have a loving father who loves us and does not shun us in our rebellion. I mean, I encourage you today or this week to take the time to read for the first time or for the thousandth time the story of the prodigal son Jesus tells in Luke 15. And when you read it this time, compare how Jesus describes the father who is God in that story with how David is in the story we're looking at. 
see in that story how the father knows the rebellion of his son and doesn't shun him, but runs towards him and embraces him and welcomes him into his home. That is what God does to us in our rebellion. He runs towards us. He loves us. And he brings us into a restored relationship with him. The more we believe that, the more we can fight against our tendency to not forgive others and be bitter, angry people. Well, as we finish up this story, David is in mourning, and it's greatly affecting his soldiers and the crowds. What should have been a celebration of victory has turned into a somber, sour event. The text says that the victory that day was turned into mourning. And Joab, the commander of David, will have none of this. He will not accept this. Joab, the insubordinate military leader who blatantly disobeyed his king's orders, comes to David with harsh words no one ever would speak to a king. He scolds David as king for not celebrating and instead not being grateful to the people that helped him win the battle. He accuses David of having wrong priorities and values that are all mixed up. He confronts David with a hard-hitting sequence of accusations. It's stunning what he says to his king. Joab seems to have no feelings or sympathy at all to David's pain. He seems to be all about the task and duty rather than about feelings and sensitivity. And this is exactly what David needed to hear at this point. Now Joab is a complicated figure for sure. He's a piece of work. You read in 2 Samuel these stories of him. There are times when he has wrong motives, it seems. There are times when he's all about being political and not caring if he's right or he's wrong. Joab was definitely harsh in how he treated David. Joab was disrespectful to his king. But was he wrong in what he said? At this moment right now, David's lack of leadership was dangerous because someone could arise and attempt to seize power that would have been bad for Israel and Jerusalem. And David's lack of love and care for his people is a problem that needs to be addressed. Now David naturally grieves his son. It understands, it's understandable, but Joab's words are probably right, that if everyone was dead and Absalom was alive, he would be pleased. The problem here is David is choosing his family not only over those who he has authority to over as a king, but he is choosing an enemy of God, an enemy of God's kingdom, and an enemy of God's people over the very people that God has called his own. Joab's confrontation was like a slap in the face to David to wake him up, and our passage ends with David sitting at the gate and the people coming to him. Now, what is our application to all this? What is our takeaway about this encounter with Joab and David? Is it that being confrontational, task-oriented, lacking in compassion and emotions, a kind of a jerk, a good thing? Well, I don't know about that. But as we see over and over again in Scripture, it's interesting to see how God uses broken, flawed people for his good. God uses words that are said maybe with wrong motives and a lack of love to challenge David in what he needs to hear. And I think the application for us is sometimes God will use people that are difficult and situations that are difficult to wake us up to see what is going on. 
Sometimes God used confrontation from others that we do not like at all, and I don't like that. For me, it's very easy to treat criticism from someone who doesn't show me tact or grace as something I don't need to listen to because of how they spoke to me. But maybe the words they're saying, even if it's the wrong motives, are what I need to hear from God. Maybe today there's something in your life where, or someone in your life that is speaking to you that is trying to show you something that you need to hear. I don't know what that is. But maybe God is using a difficult situation or a difficult person right now to remind you something about who he is and what he calls you to do. My encouragement to all of us today is to ask God to soften our hearts to listen. To soften our hearts to hear. To soften our hearts to be open to the fact that God might be speaking to us right now in the situation you're in. Life is complicated. People are complicated. God's kingdom and God's plans are often complicated. But may we remember this in all of this. Our God as king is far greater than David ever was as a king. Our God as a father is far greater than David ever could be as a father. And our king and our father is with us in this complicated life to love us, to care for us, and to lead us into his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and the work he did to allow us to be free from our sins and to live in your kingdom. Father, may we follow you as our king and as our father and as our Lord. And may we listen to you as you tell us things we need to learn about ourselves and about the world around us that we get to love and serve because you love and serve us. In your holy name. Amen.